Good morning, church family. It's great to be here with you all. It's an honor to share and to be present here uh, with you all. If you have your Bible, turn to John 13. We're actually going to kind of saddle two different passages. So the main text today is going to be in John 13, but you might want to put a marker over in Luke chapter 22. So I'll be kind of saddling those two for the scripture reading and also in my message today. It'll kind of give you a good context of the passage and where we are. And thank you to all the fathers in the room as well. I will be speaking in my message particularly to you all. And today we're in John chapter 13 and we are in the upper room discourse. And the upper room discourse is, we'll talk a little bit about this, but it's basically John 13 through 16 with a prayer on in chapter 17. But for my scripture reading today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read John 13, verses 1 through 3. And then I'm going to flip back to Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to kind of give you context. And then I'll come back to verse 4. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now flip to Luke chapter 22, verse 14. We pick up in the upper room. That's where we are in Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Skip down to verse 24 of Luke 22. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called the benefactors. But it is not, you, it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? John 13, verse 4. Jesus then got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do now you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. Verse 8 of John 13. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. But Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Behold, Simon Peter, by all means then, Lord, wash then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, okay, Peter, calm down. Uh, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was going to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, notice he switches them, the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Amen. Amen. Psalm 8. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you would care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty, and you make him rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and all the beasts of the fields. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Bow with me just really quick. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your scripture and the, the, mag- the magnificent truth that it is. Uh, Lord, I, I just, um, just feel completely and totally inadequate to even begin to... St- Scratch the surface of your word. But Lord, I just pray that your spirit would work amongst us, that your, your word would go forth as a sword to pierce our soul. And Lord, that we would prove ourselves to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Bless our time and lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I titled my sermon, uh, Demonstrating Love. Demonstrating Love, How and Why. Jesus, in our passage today, does something that only the lowest in society would ever do, and his disciples are completely shocked. Jesus humbles himself. But who is Jesus? Jesus humbles himself to the lowest servant in a household, but who is he? Jesus is God. He is the Creator. He is the Most High. He is Yahweh, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who has an everlasting kingdom, to which all knees will bow. He is the Passover Lamb, sacrificing Himself for the sins of the world. And who is Jesus? He is King. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One, foreseen in Genesis three, chapter Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, as the one who bruised His heel on the head of the serpent. He is the pre-existent one, never created. Jesus is God, and yet. He lowers himself to the lowest of servants, showing them his love, demonstrating to them in a practical way, and giving each of us an example to follow. Before we go too far into the Gospel of John in chapter 13, let us remember very quickly where we are in the story of John. Uh, the reason, let me just explain this real quick. The reason I do context, kind of right at the beginning of each sermon, is because, you know, I struggle to remember what I had for dinner last night, okay? Can anybody relate to that? Much less what, okay, I've got a couple of, but much less what we talked about a week ago. A lot has happened in the last 164 hours, 168 hours, excuse me. So where are we in the Gospel of John? The Gospel of John is written by the second most prolific New Testament author. The author of the Gospel of John also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation. John, the author, is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he, he records a very unique perspective, whereas the other three are called the Synoptic Gospels. John is very, very different. It has a different purpose in mind. And John is really answering the question in this whole Gospel of who is Jesus? And as the gospel unfolds, it reads like any great story or great novel, that as the story unfolds, the characters are developed more and more. If you can outline the gospel of John into two sections, you have John chapter 1, verse, John chapter 1 through John chapter 11, we see the proof of the Christ, and then John chapter 12 through the end of the book is the presentation of the Christ. So today, in John 13, we are in the presentation of the Christ. 
Two weeks ago, we unpacked John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36, seeing what it means to follow our king. And if you were here, for the fifth time in this gospel, Jesus proclaims to be the son of man. The son of man. Now that is out of Daniel chapter 7. And we saw in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, that the Son of Man is the king that will have an everlasting dominion in which all knees will bow. And the point to us was following our king, who is Jesus, requires us to deny ourselves and to follow him by believing and walking in the light of truth. And then last week we kind of looked at, okay, now what? Now since Jesus is the light... What do we as sons of light do? My point last week was that we reflect the light with our life, with our love, and with our lingo. Not caring for the opinions of other people and not faulting ourselves when people reject the gospel. So that is where we pick up today. As I mentioned at the end of John chapter 12, that is the closure of Jesus' public ministry. And in John chapter 13, Jesus begins his private ministry to his disciples But my message today is going to be in kind of two parts. It's going to be really uh, two messages because I couldn't just, anyways, couldn't do two, anyways, I crammed it all into one. Okay, so what I plan to do, the part one is really setting the stage of the upper room discourse, and then part two of my message is really unpacking John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now, I have been going through the Gospel of John for quite some time, as you all probably know, and, I, and for an extended period of time, I have been anxiously waiting for me to finally arrive in John 13. Okay, We are finally here. I believe that all Scripture is inspired, is inerrant, is all equally important, but there are sections of Scripture that just speak deeper to us, like Romans 5 through 8. And John chapter 13 through John 17 is one of those sections. Let us not disconnect from the story. So many times when we read the scripture, we read it as, oh, that was a nice truth for them. But every promise and every truth that is presented to us in John chapter 13 through 17 is either given to his disciples or the disciples of his disciples. Which is who? Us. So every promise and every truth that is contained in this section is applicable in some context to our life. So let us go into the scripture together with that in mind. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 13. Now, as we kind of unpack the Upper Room Discourse, I would like to kind of place it in its chronological context, but also in its logical context. When we pick up in John 13, where are we in the story? It is Thursday evening. Jesus earlier, four days ago, rode into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey, proclaiming himself to be the king of Israel. And then on Thursday of that week, where we pick up today, he goes into the upper room and he shares a message privately to his disciples. The northern part of Israel observed Passover on Thursday, and the southern part observed it on Friday So it's Thursday. Catch what I'm laying down. It's Thursday evening. What happens within 24 hours? Think about all of the events that happen within 24 hours. Jesus has the Passover meal. Then Judas runs out of dinner, betrays Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. 
Then Jesus leaves the Passover meal, goes up to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, praying. Judas then finds him in the garden, praying, and betrays him with the most cowardly way. He kisses him on the cheek. And then, within 24 hours, Jesus endures trials before Herod, before Caiaphas, and before Pilate. And within 24 hours, he hangs on a tree to die for the sins of the world. That all happens. So, by this time tomorrow, all of that happens. Why does Jesus die? He fulfills Exodus chapter 12, Isaiah 53. I'm going to read that real quick. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of that happens within the next 24 hours. So John 13 through 16 is his last final bit of instruction to his followers, to his disciples. And if you have your notes, I'm going to kind of outline the logical flow of this passage. We place it chronologically where we are, that it's the night before he is crucified. And then all of the events that happened, Judas' betrayal, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, his, his trials before Caiaphas, all those things happen within a matter of one day. But then we have the logical flow of this passage. John 13 and 14, if you have your notes, provides his disciples with answers for the imminent future. John 13, 1 through 17 answers to them, what do they do now? John 13, 18 through 38 answers what is about to happen. And John 14, 1 through 31 answers what to hope in. But my friend pointed this out to me some time ago, that the, that the label uproom discourse for this section of scripture is a little bit misleading. <laughs> because John 13 and 14 are really the uproom discourse, and John 15 through 17 is not. It's probably the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives discourse, because it says in John chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says, come let us leave. So at the end of John 14, Jesus leaves, and then on the way up to the Mount of Olives, he gives John 15 through 17. John 15 describes the foundation for the future. John 16 is the fruit for the future, and John 17 is the final prayer for the future. So that kind of gives us a road map to help us understand the path that we are walking over the next 10 years or so. But today, is the, the passage we are going to unpack is one that is very famous. And today I want to talk to you about something we all know we should be doing, but we all struggle to do. We all know that we as Christians are supposed to serve one another. Can I get an amen to that one? That part of the Christian life is we serving our brothers and sisters of Christ and far beyond. That we know to do this, but we struggle on why and how. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today, is really the why and how. But perhaps one of the reasons why we struggle to wash one another's feet, so to speak, is because we just love to be served. Think about it. When you go to a restaurant, what do they call that? They're called servers. And what do you do if they serve you well? You pay them more. We love to be served. In our, in our broken, sinful human being, we just love and feel like people are here to serve us. We love to be served. That's why we... May get a massage. Okay, don't touch me. That's, okay, that's my, my thing. Okay. 
That's why we get manicures and pedicures. We could paint our fingernails ourselves, but we love to be served and spoiled. And the fact that we love to be served, I mean, think about American companies. They understand this better than we probably do because they have a whole department called what? Customer service. We love it. We love for people to wait on us. I mean, when I was at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, you know, having my tie cut into vacuum cleaners, and then me pulling that thing out, right? Okay, I was sitting there in this kind of clothing in August, cleaning a car, and it was like 1,000 degrees outside. Glad that portion of my life is over with. Praise the Lord for it. Okay. But we had something in Enterprise Rent-A-Car called ESQI, Enterprise Service Quality Index, and that meant everything. It measured how well we served our customers. I mean, I, I personally love to be served. I, I love it. I mean, my wife and I, for our honeymoon, went down to Can- Cancun, Mexico, went to like a, this five-star resort, all-inclusive place, and we, you know, it's one of those places where you have a Diet Coke and you shake your glass and somebody comes running, okay, and fills it up real quick. And we ordered fajitas, I remember, at 1 o'clock in the morning just because we could. It was awesome. We love to be served, and our culture tells us to be served. And because of this indoctrination, because we have been told over and over and over again by American companies, by our culture, that you should worry about yourself and no one else, because of this, we have been indoctrinated to feel that everybody is here to serve us, but nothing can be further from the truth. As a Christian, we are here to serve other people. So today, this is what I want to do. We need a paradigm shift. We need to change our perspective in life. We need a radical change in our outlook. As a boss, we can be ensnared to think that our employees and our people are there to serve us, but really a good boss serves them. A father We often look at our children like free labor, okay, right? But a good father serves his family. A pastor can have a ballooned ego, thinking people are there to pay his salary and to serve his every wish, but nothing could be further from the truth. A good pastor sees his role as a servant and as a shepherd, a husband. We can become blind to the needs of our wife, burdening her with with a list of unrealistic expectations, But a husband is there to lay down his life for his wife. As a person that has been unregenerated, as a person that is sinful and broken, which we all are, our natural tendency is to feel like people are there to wait on us. But friends, listen to me. We need a complete change, a complete 180. We need to see the truth of the Bible for what it is. That if our Savior, who is God, who is the Messiah, who is the King of Kings, who is the Christ, if our Savior is there to serve us, then how much more should we serve one another? That is what our passage is about today. So if you have your Bible, turn in there to John chapter 13. As mentioned this before, Jesus closes his public ministry at the end of John 12, and he begins a private ministry in John chapter 13. And what I find amazing that in his private ministry, that the very first lesson he gives them is a complete paradigm shift. Because as we read earlier, what are they arguing about at the Passover meal? In Luke chapter 22, they are arguing about who is going to be the greatest. 
So the disciples themselves are just like us. We're worried about who is our status symbol in the world, how rich we appear to be. But Jesus says we need a paradigm shift in the very first lesson he gives them before he talks about anything else. is for them to see the truth of the gospel as it is. And if you have your text before you, I'm going to break this down into three main parts, and I'm going to reveal them as we go. Part one of our text is in verses one through three. Part two is in verses four through 11. And part three is in verses 12 through 17. Jesus demonstrates his love because part number one of who he is or who he was. Jesus serves others because of who he was and who was he. John 13 verse one. It's a beautiful text. There's so much here. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing, notice that word knowing there. Jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But then notice verse 2. is not there by accident. In contrast, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus loves even him to the end, despite knowing what's going on. Verse 3, Jesus, again, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. What did Jesus know? He knew two things. That Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart. Now, when I was translating this verse from the original languages, Koine Greek, into the English, I was looking for the Greek word know, K-N-O-W. And the two Greek words behind that are typically oida and gnosko. Oida is a factual knowledge, and gnosko is an intimate knowledge. But that word's not here. It's actually the Greek word orao, which means to see. So Jesus, seeing that his hour had come, Think about the difference between seeing something and knowing something, right? There's a much bigger reality for me seeing you here today than for me to just know about you. Jesus sees that his hour is about to come for him to depart. And number two, he saw that the Father had given all things into his hands. The way I see verses 1 through 3, that that is the foundation for verses 4 through 17. Because of what Jesus saw, that that is the foundation for what is to come for Jesus to wash his disciples' feet. The foundation is a profound understanding in the purpose and plan of God. Jesus knew that his time was near to depart. How do we typically react when we know our time is near? I mean, in our life. How many of you have ever turned in a two weeks notice before? Okay. Okay. So what's the last two weeks of your job like? Okay. I'm just going to hang out here and put my feet up on the desk, all right, and just kind of chill. Is that just me? No? Okay. Um, But here Jesus doesn't do that. He sees that his time is near. Instead of just kind of kicking back and kind of coasting and being crucified, Jesus gives them this magnificent truth. But I want you to notice verse 1 again. Man. Now, before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
Watch that word, having love. The word having love comes from the Greek root word agape, which you probably have heard before. It's a sacrificial type of love, and it's an aorist participle. I know, what does all that mean, super nerd? Okay, it, it, it gives a timeless aspect that God has, with, does, and will always love his disciples. Despite what? Despite knowing that one of them betrayed him. And then notice the end phrase there. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That word end right there is the Greek word telos, which means to be filled or to be fulfilled or finished. It is the same root word that when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, to telestai. It's the Greek word telos. So Jesus, having loved, does love, and will always love his disciples to the full capacity that is imaginable by an infinite loving God. Despite what? Verse 2. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. I believe John, the author, intentionally puts verse 2 in between verses 1 and 3 to tell us what? That Jesus loves Judas, past, present, and future, for the infinite capacity of God, despite knowing that Judas will betray him with a kiss in the Garden of Eden. Man, if you knew that somebody you've lived with for three years is going to betray you in that fashion, if you knew that for certain, would you love them? But Jesus does. He loves even the one that stabs him in the back. But that tells me something about the love of God. That if Jesus did is and what or will always love Judas, then guess what that tells me as his son, as a child of God, as his disciples, that God, Jesus, will always love me. That if Jesus loves the one who stabbed him in the back, then Jesus will love me when I betray him, when I walk to the sin that he detests, that he died for. That when I betray him for a different cause, that when I walk off the path of the Christian life, that I know Jesus' love will still be there. He loved Judas. And if he can love him, then he can love you. And he does love you. That Jesus' love is boundless. It is timeless. His love is unconditional. His love never runs dry. His love is eternal. His love for you was formed in eternity past and remains to eternity future. His love for you, despite all of your past mistakes, we have this false notion in, in our human nature that God can't really love me because of all the mistakes that I've made. He loved Judas, the man who would betray him. Jesus' love is unconditional, it is boundless, it is limitless, it is timeless. And Jesus' love for you and for me and for them is the foundation of his act that he does in verses 4 through 11. So verses 1 through 3 is the foundation, and verses 4 through 11 is his act. But I'm going to speak as well. I, I cannot say this enough. I cannot stress the importance of a Christian to know the love of God enough. 
Because if we are insecure in our love of a Savior, then we will struggle to grow, we will struggle to serve, we will struggle to follow Him, when we always feel like a failure instead of realizing the unconditional and timeless love of God that He forgives us of our sin, He forgives us enough to pay for them. An insecure Christian, one that does not understand their standing before God, is one that will struggle to really grow in their faith. Being insecure prevents us from really serving one another, at least with the right motives. Being secure in who you are in Christ and gives you an attitude of humility. And um, I, 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 as you probably know, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And um, <laughs> what I say is that every student that was there wanted to be the largest ant. Okay? Because we had all of these professors that have written all of these wonderful books and we're using all of their books. And we feel so small and insignificant. So everybody's trying to be, all the students are trying to be the largest ant. Okay? But, and so they're constantly one-upping each other, talking about bragging about themselves and bragging about the translations that they've done into Syriac and all this stuff. And what's the root of all that? Is their insecurity. Not understanding who they really are. I believe understanding God's love is the foundation of our ability to serve one another with pure motives. Without us understanding his love for me, we will struggle to extend love to them. Why and how do we demonstrate love to others? My first point, if you have your notes, is on the back. Why is because of Christ's love we are to demonstrate love by serving others, by serving others. Jesus knew who he was. He saw the will of God. He loved those even who betrayed him. And this is the foundation for when he takes up the towel. Jesus demonstrates his love because of part one of who he was and part two because of what he saw. Verse four. Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments. Notice that. And taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So Jesus, the foundation for his act of service is his love for his people and his understanding and the will of God. And then he turns and he sees a practical need of the disciples and he begins to wash their feet. But I want you to walk into the story with me. I've, re- I've read a little bit of other context. What happens? So during supper, I can just imagine, Jesus hears them arguing Luke chapter 22, even though he's time and time again told them the, le- the last shall be first and the first shall be last. But keep on going, guys. We'll keep arguing about how, who's going to be the greatest. And I can just imagine him just rolling his eyes as he's eating the Passover meal with them. And then they're sitting there arguing Luke chapter 22, the night he's going to be crucified, or the day before. And then he's, okay, fine. Okay, 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 okay. You're still not getting it. So then I'm going to take up a towel. And humble myself to show you what it means to be a servant of all. Jesus, I can just imagine, after their grumbling and their dispute about the greatest, he got up. He laid aside his garments. Notice that word is plural. He saw he's in his undergarments and he took up a towel. And then he probably went outside to grab the water jar where it was customarily placed for foot washing before you actually walked into the house. But they didn't. And then he grabbed a basin, a bowl, and he placed it underneath their feet. And then he walked back in, and he began to pour water over their feet. And I want you to think about something else entirely. How many feet are there to wash? How many feet we have? We have two feet, hopefully not three or four. Um, And there's 12 people in the room. So there's 24 feet. 
What does that tell you? It tells you that Jesus was on his hands and knees for quite some time. He goes to 24 different men, or 24 different feet, excuse me, 12 different men to wash their feet, and it takes him some time. But why does he wash their feet? For three reasons. He washes them, number one, to demonstrate his love, to demonstrate John chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Because of his love for them, he demonstrates his love to them by washing their feet. Number two, to teach them a lesson. He washes their feet to demonstrate his love, but also to teach them a lesson because the disciples don't get it quite yet. So now the sovereign God of the universe, who is Christ, who is the Messiah, who is Lord of all, who is the Son of Man, the Son of God, that that man, the Prince of Peace, the creator of all things, would humble himself to the point where he would wash their feet, giving them an example, a lesson to teach, that quit being consumed with the status you have in the world. Quit being consumed with the status that you have in his kingdom. Be consumed by serving and washing one another's feet. And Jesus washes their feet for a third reason, because there is a practical need. Their feet are dirty. I can't imagine what those feet actually look like. Because in this culture, we struggle oftentimes to transport a story back to the first century. But in this culture, they didn't have Memorial Parkway. Okay, They didn't have the great, beautiful roads we have. They traveled on dirt pads. So how did their feet look? They, they, they wore flip-flops. Okay, let me, do some, let me just picture this for you. Imagine you go up on Montesano, okay, and you're walking a dirt path in flip-flops. Not a good idea. Don't do that. But what would your feet look like after a couple of miles? They would be absolutely filthy. That's the picture I have of the disciples. They walked from Bethany into the city of Jerusalem on dirt roads in sandals, and their feet are filthy. And then notice how Peter reacts. So Jesus washes their feet, and then Peter shoves his foot in his mouth. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now pause for just a second. I can only imagine Peter's humiliation his conviction here, because here is his Lord, his master, scooping down to wash his feet, despite what? Despite him just arguing about who is the greatest. Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter said, Okay, Lord, uh, wash then all of my body, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said, okay, chill. Uh, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. What does that mean? You are clean, but not all of you. Who is not all of you? For he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason. He said, not all of you are clean. Now notice verse 10 again with me. He says, you are clean. What does he mean to Peter that you are clean? I think he's taken that phrase and he's taken it up to a spiritual reality that Peter is washed in the blood, that he has been justified by the grace of God, that Jesus' sacrifice for sin satisfied the sin payment for Peter. But he says, not all of you are clean. Judas is the one he refers to here. Judas has not believed in Jesus. He has not trusted him as Savior. Instead, Judas is in it for himself, has not surrendered, has not believed and trusted in the light. And Peter is appalled that his teacher, Gnosko, that his Lord, his master, is there before him washing his feet, lowering himself to the lowest of service to give them an object lesson to live by. Why and how do we demonstrate love to others? Why is because of Christ's love. We demonstrate love how? 
by serving others in practical ways. By serving others in practical ways. Truly serving people requires us to understand the foundation of love that Christ gives us in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, but it requires something else also. It requires us to actually see needs. Can I just speak? We are, let's just be real, we are so consumed with our schedule, we're so consumed with ourselves that we often fail to see the needs of others. And can I go a little bit further with that? We are so sometimes so close to the situation in life that we fail to see the needs of those we love the most. Men in the room, I'm going to pick on you today. It's Father's Day. Okay, sorry. You just give me one that's uplifting, Byron. Sorry, I'm just going to pick on you today. I'm picking on myself. Men in the room, do you see the needs of your wife? Now, ladies... Okay, hang on. Before you go home and say, well, did you, are you going to apply what Byron said before you do that? Man, I'm just asking, do you see the needs of your wife? Do you see the needs of your children? Do you, if, you do, if you're not married and you don't have kids, do you see the needs of a neighbor, of somebody in church? Serving others requires us to understand the foundational love of God because we, then we won't serve out of pure motives. We'll serve as a means to justify ourselves. But then also serving others requires us to see needs and not just see them but meet them. You know, Jesus is sitting at a table, friends, and it's not the kind of table that we have today where chairs slide under. It's a U-shaped table, 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 and there's no chairs. Well, they typically did. The table's probably, I don't know for sure. I wasn't born 2,000 years ago, clearly, okay. But, you know, I, I imagine the table is pretty low to the ground. There's no chairs that go underneath it. What they did was they would have their meal on the table, and then they would recline with couches and pillows, so if you're reclining with 12 other men around a U-shaped table, what is in everybody's face? In your dirty feet, all right? So Jesus sees their dirty feet that is in his face, poor guy, okay? And then he sees the need and he meets that need. That's what it means to serve other people, friends, is to see people's, what they need at the moment and then to meet that need. Notice verse 15 again as I'll close. And this is a commission to all of us. I'll go back to verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I, so I am. If I then the Lord and teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet to serve one another in practical ways to see needs and meet them. Verse 15, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. What, I'm, what is amazing about this story is that Jesus, who is God and creator, humbles himself to the point that Peter would be uncomfortable. <laughs> and he still goes and meets them there. My point today is quite simple. Why and how do we demonstrate love to others why? Because of Christ's love and example, we demonstrate love by serving others in practical ways. But as I kind of wrap this thing up, I'm going to kind of just ask you three questions of application. As I've already mentioned, this is kind of a summation of the truth that I've uh, talked about to this point. Before you really serve people, you've got to get your personal spiritual life intact. You've got to really understand the love of Christ that he gives to you, that it is infinite, that it started in eternity past, it is present reality, and will go to eternity future, that there is nothing you could do to separate you from the love of God. 
that as his children, as his child, he loved you enough to die for your sins. You know, can I just speak? Let us not let that become cold and stale. That Jesus died for my sins. How many times have we heard that in our Christian life? A bazillion. But it should never get old. What a magnificent truth that is. If you truly want to serve and to be obedient to the call of Christ to wash one another's feet, we must be secure. So my first question is this. Are you secure in Christ? Are you secure in his love? Do you feel like you have to justify yourself, that you have to still be good enough, that you have to measure up? And often our view of the Lord is our view of our own Father here on earth. But we have a perfect Father in heaven. Application number two is the question, what are the practical needs of others? What are the practical needs of others? That in order to serve, we must see the people that are in the restaurant right next to us, the people in the store, the people in our own homes. We must see the needs that they have. And then number three, we must meet that need. How can you meet the need of another person? Men, I'm going to speak to you all today. And I've already asked you this question. What are the needs of your wife? What are the needs of your children? What is something that your wife has asked you to do for some time that you just keep putting off or that you're so close to the situation you don't even see anymore? Maybe the call for your wife is to finish that bathroom that you've been refurbishing for three years. I don't know. Maybe it's just to do the dishes. Maybe it's just to say, hey, wife, you look pretty today. Maybe it's... To mow the lawn. I don't know what it is. But I imagine your wife knows what it is. <laughs> My wife, she was here, yeah, okay, I'll get a free chore at home. <laughs> what is that need that your wife has? What is the need that your neighbor has? What is the need that your mother or father has? What is the need that your sibling has that you can meet? Kind of fill in the blank to this next statement is this, I will demonstrate love by serving name in a practical way by blank. I will demonstrate love by serving this person in a practical way, fill in the blank. Because friends, let us not think, let us be Christians that understand the love of God and the instruction that he gives to us on a continual basis. Let us not be above serving other people. Let us lower ourselves to the lowliest position to serve the needs of our fellow men. Let us not think about ourselves. Let us live lives that aren't self-consumed. Let us live lives that are Savior-consumed. Let us live lives that star him. Let us shock the world and shock your family today by the love and the service that you show to them. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel that has saved us. Let us rather proclaim Christ in our lives by humbling ourselves, serving the needs of others in practical ways, so that they will feel loved in the name of Christ go forth. If if you do not know Jesus as your Savior here this morning, if you have, do not have a personal relationship with Him, then He offers you the gift of salvation by grace through faith. 
For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he offers you the gift of salvation, that if you would believe in him, trust him, surrender to him, you will be saved and have eternal life and a changed earthly life. Here in just a moment, we'll have a couple of prayer partners here for during the last song. And if you would like to pray with anybody, it doesn't have to be about the gospel necessarily. If you would like to pray with somebody to receive Jesus Christ, there will be a couple of people down front. And we will do that during the last song this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. What an, what an example you give to us that the, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the sovereign creator of the universe would lower himself to clean feet. Not being above that. Lord, I just pray that we would then in turn be like your son, that we would see the needs of other people, that we would wash their feet, and Lord, that we would meet that need. I thank you for the fathers and and men in the room. The the men that are here in this room, Lord, I say all the time to my father-in-law that we at Calvary Road have great men that the Lord has assembled to this church, not just men that are in leadership, but men that have come into this body. Lord, thank you for the men that we have, that they walk with integrity and they love you and they love their families. And Lord, I pray that they would not grow tired. And Lord, I know the stress of being a father and a husband. I know the stress of being a provider. And Lord, I just pray that we would continually lay down our life for our families and for our wives and for our loved ones. And Lord, just uh, get it, grant us endless compassion for those that you've given to us to bless. Um, I thank you for the, the, the privilege it is to be a man and to be your son and to be your heir and to be a leader in this world. And I pray, you know, Lord, that, um, that the world would see us in this room, would see the, the, the leaders and people and men and women that we are, and that they would want what we got. Lord, give us boldness, give us selflessness, give us perseverance and energy to love people well. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.